Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the LSE. Uh, my name is Simon Glendening, and I'm the director of the Forum for European Philosophy. And it's my great pleasure to chair this event here tonight on Europe's citizens. Um, last week, we looked at issues around Europe's history, which was uh, very interesting because however we like to think of that history, we certainly know that it has one. Uh, Europe's citizens, I think I'm even more interested in this because since 1992, I am one. When I was born, I had a, was it dark blue or black? Very dark blue, and uh, it just said um, United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Now at the top it says European Union, and at the back it says um, British citizen, but apparently I am also a citizen of the European Union. So uh, whatever that means, it's going to have something to do with me, and for many of you, something to do with you. And for many of the Turks here, it'll be interesting for you because you might become one. So we're interested in the, the meaning of this status. And uh, to discuss this, we have three very distinguished guests uh, from <coughs> this side moving that way. Richard Bellamy, Professor of Political Science and Director of the School of Public Policy at UCL. In the middle, Maurice Fraser, Senior Fellow in European Politics at the European Institute here at the LSE. And at the end, Thomas Dietz, Professor of Political Science and International Relations at the University of Tübingen. Now, um, as is the way with these events, they, they each get a chance to say something without interruption, first of all. They get 10 minutes-ish to uh, make their first pitch on their view on this topic. And uh, then after that, after they've all gone through their 10 minutes, then they have um, a further little bit, five minutes each or something, to either elaborate on something they failed to mention in their first part, or to respond <coughs> to something that somebody else said in their part. And at that point in that five minute piece, they are allowed to be interrupted by other members of the panel, but not by anybody else. Actually, I could interrupt as well. Um, and then after that, we'll probably be through about 55 minutes or so, and we'll have plenty of time for questions and contributions from you. Now, the order we're going to go in is uh, Richard first. Um, Richard, I don't, I don't think, is a specialist on Turkish angles, and uh, that, that's, in a way, deliberate, that we have somebody who's speaking from a point of view which is not represent. None of these views are, as it were, meant to be representative in some way. That's an absolute impossibility. But on the other hand, nevertheless giving some kind of account from where they stand of our topic for this evening. And then uh, we'll have Morris Fraser, and then finally Thomas Dietz, who, who is here in some way to, to I, I know uh, Morris will want to bring in some Turkish angles himself, but uh, Thomas especially invited to do so. <laughs> and uh, so we're going to start with um, Richard, and uh, I'll hand over to you. Thank you very much. <coughs> okay, well, thanks. Um, uh, this may be without interruption, but I don't think it's going to be without hesitation or repetition. <laughs> uh, just a minute. I thought I'd start just by talking a little bit about uh, what EU citizenship is. <coughs> I think that's important because political philosophers, my fellow political philosophers uh, especially, have a tendency to talk about what they imagine it ought to be or think that it is, rather than about 
what it actually is. Um, European citizenship is overwhelmingly concerned with reciprocal arrangements between member states rather than access to EU level uh, goods and benefits. And that's why you know, Simon could quite rightly say, in fact, the last time I, I, I spoke on European citizenship at the LSE, I, I asked two people who were wandering down from UCL with me um, you know, what they thought of this status. Did they know that they had it or, or whatever, one being uh, uh, Tim Crane. Um, uh, and neither of them had any idea at all. Um, uh, both educated people. And uh, that's because if you're a Brit, British, uh, residing and working in the UK, really the only aspect of EU citizenship which touches you is the ability to vote for the European Parliament. Uh, something that, as we know, only about 25% of those eligible to do so bothers to do in the UK. Um, it really comes into play because of it being tied to the four freedoms which are at the heart of the EU and the market order that it supports, namely the, the freedom of labour, goods, capital and services. Those services are limited in important ways, and I'll come to in a minute. And it's when you move from one member state to another, or trade between member states, that um, those uh, four freedoms come into play. Because what it means is that you can't be discriminated against by another member state on grounds of your nationality. Um, in terms of, of applying for a job, uh, access to goods, capital and services, selling your services to other, to other member states. But what one finds when one reads many political philosophers from Balabar and Beck through to Habermas and Held is that they really overlooked that this is fundamentally a market aspect uh, of citizenship in, in, in nature, and they, have, and I think what they particularly overlook, I think, is that when one tries to give European citizenship a more political cast, one has to do so, or it is always done so, on the basis of this fundamentally market structure, uh, and as a result, one risk inherent to politicising. EU citizenship more is that you give a market character to what were hitherto essentially public political goods. And that happens most particularly in the area of those services which we tend to think of as being public services, education, uh, health, welfare. Now, in the original design of union citizenship, these crucial services were regarded as being essentially internal matters. They were not marketable services in the understanding of the act of, of European Union. 
And so it was possible to discriminate against non-nationals, even if they were members of another member state, in terms of access to these particular services. But what one's seen in, uh, very recently, largely through extensions of the case law of the European Court of Justice, not through any change made by the member states themselves, has been the gradual erosion of protections around these public services, so that they have gradually become marketized. Uh, not entirely, and the cases have often been very unusual ones, but one prime case is that of Watts, for example. And what this, what this case did was very important. And in, within the UK, uh, like every member state, there is a certain degree of rationing of healthcare provision. So, and one way of rationing healthcare provision is to create queues for certain kinds of medical treatment. Uh, but what the, uh, the EU said was that if there was a queue for your medical treatment in your local health authority. You, but there wasn't a queue in uh, another country. Your uh, GP, your fund holder, could spend money outside the borders of your country on providing you with that health care. That sounds good news for many citizens. They, they, they think, oh, good, I don't have to queue up. But, uh, but the net effect of that is, of course, that uh, taxes raised for funding healthcare, public health care within the UK are being diverted outside your borders. And the, ration, the rationale for the rationing was, of course, in order to uh, have a certain fiscal probity in, in how your health service works. And that gets undermined. Uh, and as I said, you know, the EU doesn't fund any healthcare <laughs> itself. It's all funded within member states. Now, I think the failure to understand the way EU citizenship works and the fact that it is essentially linked to the market. So previously, you see, one important aspect of EU citizenship is, you know, you come to another. EU country, as a as a gent, Thomas, you used to work at Birmingham, so you were a a uh, <coughs> Thomas was allowed to come <laughs> and work in be hired by Birmingham University, but uh, his access to those public services was dependent upon him being a worker. Had he not been a worker? had it been somebody who didn't have employment so that he'd be paying taxes into the British Treasury, etc. He would have had to have had private insurance in order to, to stay here. Some other arrangement would have to be made. Um, and so the whole point of this uh, was to, to, in a sense, maintain the integrity of public services whilst at the same time allowing access to the market, not discriminating 
against other EU nationals in their competition for jobs. I think that that, as I said, has not been fully understood by many who write about it. And you know, since we're here talking about uh, Turkey, one, one instance, I think, is the, uh, in many ways, insightful discussion of EU citizenship offered by the Turkish-American political theorist uh, Sela Benabib. She aligns, in an interesting way, I think, EU citizenship uh, I think in the lecture she gave at PLSE, uh, to the Kantian cosmopolitan right to hospitality, uh, which one finds in perpetual peace. And, and she notes rightly that this is the one cosmopolitan right that one finds in, in, in Kant. But as she also notes that uh, what that right of hospitality is, is a right to be a temporary resident, not a right to full membership, full access. It's a right not to be discriminated against if you find yourself needing or being in the borders of another country. And so, the although it's a human right, it's controlled by what she calls the republican right of states to control access to full citizenship within their own countries. And in a certain way, one could understand that what's happened within the EU was a kind of institutionalization of that hospitality. But hospitality, you know, means that we all know those, those guests who outstay their welcome and never do the washing up, who sort of seem to be setting up, living there, <laughs> etc., uh, never paying their bills, you know, they become permanent guests. And, what, uh, and that's what is ruled out by this notion of hospitality. But where she goes wrong is that she thinks, she says, well, um, within the EU citizenship, one's beginning to see this become rights becoming de-territorialized and disaggregated. And she says, you know, one's beginning to get social rights being given to individuals independently of whether they have, um, whether they have political rights. Uh, or other or, na or nationality membership uh, rights, uh, because, for example, you have access to to uh, employment, etc., without necessarily having to become a a uh, full member. But I think what's missing is that when those social rights do become fully deterritorialized de and disaggregated. You also remove them from the bonds of reciprocity which make people willing to pay quite high amounts in social insurance, in welfare, and in health spending. And if it was to become totally generalised, I think would be liable to make those services unsustainable. So what's the relevance of all of this to Turkey's possible accession to the EU? Sort of perhaps Standing outside my brief in, in mentioning Turkey, I didn't realise I wasn't supposed to, so I mugged up a little bit. Well, if Turkey joined the EU, it would be the second largest country by population size within the EU, roughly 72 million to Germany's 82 million, roughly 10 million more than the other big countries, um, Britain and 
follows economic uh, size too and their contributions to you. But Turkey would be the second poorest country within the EU by per capita GDP or per capita national budget. So suddenly you'd have a large but comparatively poor country joining. It's also a country of emigration, uh, as of course many of the other countries of the EU have historically been. Uh, there are large Turkish communities in all of the richer member states, two million in Germany alone. I think you know, often, again, when political philosophers are focused on, on Turkey and the EU, when politicians are focused on Turkey and the EU, the, the issue they bring up is Islamic versus Christian Europe. But with the EU, it's the economy, stupid, that counts. <laughs> no, that's, I think, the biggest issue here is, is this issue of you would have a country, a poor country, which because of its size would have quite important voting power, because voting power follows size of councillor ministers, etc., but which uh, has, um, is relatively uh, poor. The big question then, and I'll sort of reserve my next five minutes, my second five minutes perhaps to talk about it, I just want to raise it, uh, is, is this a widening which prevents any kind of deepening of EU? The UK, which is one of the, probably the biggest supporter amongst the um, leading countries uh, in the EU for uh, Turkey joining the EU. I think one big motivation for them being so is because they really do believe that this would be a widening that would stop any deepening for the very reasons that I've given, the economic reason. Uh, the other argument is it would allow a deepening, but a deepening of an even further market character which would probably, as I understand it, here I, I step, I open myself to being corrected by those who know far more about it than me, but, but the Turkish elites who favour um, joining the EU are, are often those of the business community, and so yeah, they might favour opening up those markets uh, further to them, the prospects of, of for um, um, labour movement, but are, you know, not necessarily so bothered by the building of a so-called social uh, Europe. That's not uh, at the heart. And that's again another reason why certain sections of, of, uh, of the British elite, particularly the current government, um, favours the accession of, of Turkey. But I think it is a moot point uh, as to whether that would happen, but I think it's because of this issue <coughs> that there is at present uh, an un a, a reservedness, a hesitation that one finds from France and Germany in particular. I think it's more that than the cultural issue, which is the one which tends to be raised. It's the economic issue. Thank you very much, Richard. And we can pass straight on uh, May Morris. Mm -hmm. Morris
Thank you. Um, well, Richard, I was alarmed to hear of um, guests who don't pay their bills in your house. It's an unusual dinner party, you call. Uh, but um, uh, it's it's a, a, bill, a bill at the end. Of washing up. I thought that's probably that's probably what what, uh, what, what you meant. Um, okay. Um, okay. Well, a few uh, short propositions, and I want to keep them short as possible. Um, First of all, uh, we are where we are at this interesting point, I think, even being able to discuss the impact, possible impact of Turkey upon our notions of citizenship, because the European value system is, is famously universal. And that means that its states have defined routes to uh, national citizenship which are available to individuals uh, regardless of their, uh, their um, ethnicity or their religion or their historical participation uh, in the life of a, uh, in the national life of a country. Um, and therefore, alongside citizenship qualifications based on consanguinity or on place of birth, uh, eligibility uh, for citizenship of a member state of the European Union uh, can also be established through a readiness, obviously through a readiness to abide by the laws and norms of the community by demonstration of basic knowledge about the uh, about the uh, the country they wish to adopt or whom they wish to be adopted by, um, uh, for example through a citizenship test, by the readiness to work and pay taxes and so on. So, I think it's important that we're used in Europe to thinking about citizenship um, and shared political space uh, in an inclusive, uh, not an exclusive way, and. On the whole, we don't allow essentialist arguments to stand uh, in the way. And I think, therefore, that this fact alone, putting aside the various economic and political, geopolitical arguments for Turkish accession, should give us pause for thought before we pronounce the door closed on uh, Turkey. Uh, second point, um, it seems to me that the reality of globalization and increased mobility means that we now have to think of national and, and EU, by extension, EU citizenship in a, in a global context. Uh, we have to think about whether citizenship is, uh, is primarily a way of excluding the other, the other with a capital O, <coughs> or of co-opting and incorporating it. Uh, and if you like, it's the difference between the, uh, the exclusive vision of idea of citizenship of, <coughs> of ancient Athens, restricting citizenship to uh, free male Athenians, and the inclusive vision of ancient Rome, extending citizenship and co-opting the other, as it was. Uh, in their case, in Rome's case, principally the Gothic tribes, when it suited Rome to do so. Now, the former vision, the Athenian vision, has the logic uh, of a zero-sum game. In other words, when we share a space with the other, there have to be losers as well as winners. The Roman vision, was much more of a win-win situation insofar as public support for imperial expansion was solid so long as it added, of course, to the glory of Rome and was also, and it's an important point, was also self-financing through the extension of the tax base which that afforded to Rome. And I think the read across to the contemporary EU is, 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 is actually quite striking because the problem we face is that the extension of EU membership to Turkey, and therefore of EU citizenship to Turks, to the minds and the minds of many of our fellow citizens, implies an economic sacrifice. Uh, uh, sacrifices for existing workers 
and for existing taxpayers. And the 2004 enlargements, and perhaps particularly the 2007 enlargements for Romania and Bulgaria, particularly sharpened that public concern. Um, and for all the supposed triumph of classical liberal economics in the contemporary European Union, it still, it still seems that we still imagined our, our shared, we imagine our shared European space as a competition for finite resources, rather than as a cake which we can grow uh, together. Now, I believe this is, this is the kind of cod economics which unites organized labor on the left and populist or anti-immigration parties of the far right. It also ignores the fact that Europe's aging population and demographic decline means that we will have no alternative but to co-opt the other and to enlarge EU citizenship. Now, in the present circumstances, the powerful economic argument for admitting over 70 million consumers from a dynamic economy only finds a, is only finding currently a pretty small audience. Um, and in the current economic uncertainty, uh, and, even, and even, even in more prosperous times, uh, it's hard to make either, either confident entrepreneurs or public, spirits, public spirited citizens out of the EU's suspicious and defensive populations. And I think we have to bear in mind just how dominant economic insecurity is in this discussion. I'll come to the cultural bit in a moment, but economic insecurity, I think, is, is a very powerful element, uh, and perhaps more so um, than cultural defensiveness. Um, in the last 20 years or so, we've got quite carried away by excitable chatter about the rights of EU citizens, and we're now encouraged to think of the rights of EU citizens not only as political and civil rights, but as socio-economic entitlements. But for all the talk of rights, the fact remains that the main actors uh, in the, philosophically speaking, the life world of the European community since the Treaty of Rome have been, not citizens so much, and exactly as Richard said, have been consumers. And the key freedoms have been the freedom of people, services, goods, and capital. Crucially, freedom of movement and freedom to trade. Uh, and such freedoms were uncontroversial in 1957 because they enshrined, they seemed to enshrine centuries of mobility and exchange amongst people in territories that were geographically more or less contiguous. And the Levant, and therefore the Ottoman Empire, was part of that space. Now, these freedoms only really became problematic since the Single European Act of 1985, which provided for substantive rights to employment and settlement. Uh, in the eyes of some people, the, the people who uh, will object to Polish plumbers, uh, this is stretching, this was stretching Kantian notions of hospitality to the limit. All of a sudden we were reminded that letting newcomers into the club meant letting them work amongst us, allowing them to use our public services and also to exercise their entitlements. I think we should remember here, though, that just as a matter of policy, that it is highly likely that if Turkey is eventually to be admitted uh, to, uh, to the EU, it will be in a phased or staggered way, both in respect of access to EU funds and to rights of work and settlement. And, and of course, the EU already has uh, a, graduate, a template for graduated citizenship in the form, for example, of the seven-year protection which Germany and Austria were able to secure for their labour markets. And also the new members' entitlements, new members in 2004-2007, uh, 
have had to have had to wait uh, seven years for their full entitlements under the, for example, under the Common Agricultural Policy and under cohesion funds. So effectively, therefore, the EU has conceded different levels of EU citizenship, pragmatically determined in the light of economic realities and electoral politics. So we're looking at a, I believe, at a, at a, already at a sort of a multi-dimensional idea of dis distributive justice in which Citizenship should no longer just be contemplated in its purest equal form, uh, demanding, um, uh, demanding equal entitlements, um, that is beyond the requirements of formal justice, where of course the citizens enjoy absolutely equal rights. But then what policy polity does offer uh, substantially equal entitlements uh, to all its citizens? Now there's another sense of citizenship, I'll just, I'll just say something very quickly if I may, uh, in which the, the sense of citizenship, um, not, and I'm not thinking here so much of the legal form of citizenship that was given um, uh, to Europeans, to uh, citizens of EU member states uh, under the Maastricht Treaty. I'm thinking of citizenship as a concept um, in its Athenian or Republican or its participatory form. Um, the holy grail for many true believers in the European project, um, from federalists to enthusiasts for Habermas-type um, communicative action, those who like to build a sort of a very an animated um, Europe, uh, Europe-wide coffee shop uh, in the early 18th century London style. What are the prospects, um, both in the existing EU, for that kind of participatory notion of citizenship? Um, and then how might Turkey fit into that? At least as an interesting thought experiment. Well, um, the viability of this participatory Europe uh, is, as I'm sure many of you know, is, non is a subject of ongoing debate in political science and political sociology. And the question therefore arises, could public contestation, a more vibrant type of participatory politics, close the EU's democratic deficit and legitimize the European project? And could such a conversation encompass Turkey, which for all its historic failings in terms of individual and minority rights, failings which are gradually being remedied. Turkey, which is certainly, nevertheless, a vibrant democracy and has an energetic civil society. Could such a conversation break down cultural barriers and misunderstandings and facilitate Turkish accession? Now, setting to one side the paradox that, um, that enthusiasts for European demos tend, to, tend usually to be on the federalist side of the barricades, such enthusiasts tend to be Actually, those pe are the people who tend to be hostile to EU enlargement because they see widening as undermining, deepening. Um, it seems to me that the difficulties of promoting political debate and contestation at European level seem to me to be sufficiently serious to make such a Europe-wide conversation unlikely. Citizenship in Europe will continue to be a largely passive status about the bearing of rights and entitlements rather than a disposition to take part in the political process. And I think that's simply because politics is for most people um, uh, are something of marginal interest. But that's just my, uh, my antediluvian and conservative instincts, I think, sort of servicing. But if political disengagement uh, means a lost opportunity to rehearse the arguments for Turkish accession, it also reduces the prospects, I think, of effective mobilization against Turkish accession. Um, but let's just imagine Turkey inside the EU for a moment. <coughs> for, for partisans uh, of active citizenship, Turkey, as I have suggested, actually has pretty respectable credentials. 
Uh, in this respect, it is a million miles from the political deference and torpor which we associate with many Islamic societies, principally Arab ones, and which only accentuates their otherness in the eyes of Europeans. Um, but I also mentioned cultural defensiveness. Um, there's no doubt that Turkey's Muslim status complicates its EU eligibility in the minds of many, particularly for, let's call it um, loosely, the Christian democratic constituency in Europe. But I think we should be clear that it is not our notion of citizenship as such which is challenged by Turkey's Islamic nature. Europeans' notion of citizenship owes little to our Judeo-Christian inheritance. It's part much more of our pagan inheritance from classical antiquity. And Christianity was able to accommodate itself to citizenship easily enough through the agreement in the Middle Ages on the division of church and state between the Imperium and Sacerdotium, uh, and the biblical principle of rendering unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, and so on. And similarly, post-Ottoman secular Turkey has developed a model of citizenship which has not been shaped by Turkey's dominant religion, but by a narrative of nation formation. Turkey had the early 1920s, just as 1688, 1776, and 1789 played comparable roles for England, the US, and France. My point is that, is that as citizenship in neither in the EU nor in Turkey has been built upon religion, there is no insuperable ob obstacle to convergence of laws and norms around the EU's idea of citizenship. Come to my final point there. But the biggest cultural ob objection that we see offered to Turkey's Turkish membership as, if you like, conclusive proof of Turkey's otherness is an alleged lack of respect for citizens as persons. Um, and evidence cited for this is, for example, the resilience of a, of a shame culture rather than a guilt culture in the poorer or eastern or more Kurdish parts of the country, uh, the primacy of kinship over citizenship as the key relationship in those same communities. But if we look at the treatment of persons over the country as a whole, and in particular the demarcation of public-private boundaries, we see that Turkey does not look so different from some EU countries, such, for example, as those who have recently legislated to ban or restrict the veil, such as France, Belgium, and the Netherlands have done recently, just as Turkey, of course, banned the headscarf. And then, in fact, France's ban is more far-reaching, um, as it extends not only to public institutions like universities, but also now to public spaces more generally. In other words, personhood can in France legitimately be restricted and nationalized in the public space, ostensibly out of respect for personhood, as the French would say. Even though paradoxically, France extends the person's right to privacy from, say, paparazzi photographers right across the public space. So it would seem to me that we are all groping for adequate definitions of citizenship, personhood, and the public space. Uh, and reflecting upon Turkey, simply compels us to reflect upon that whole very complex patchwork uh, which is Europe as a whole. I'll stop there. Thank you, Thank you Morris. Now we have our third final contributor, uh, Thomas Dietz. Over to you. Thank you. Um, a little bit of weight on my shoulders because I'm supposed to, to bring in Turkey and I've already done that. Uh, but of course, given that there are probably a lot of Turks in the audience, I feel a little bit hesitant to uh, uh, even uh, 
pretend that I would somehow speak on behalf or in any way representing a particular Turkish viewpoint. Um, I also found the discussion, uh, Richard's discussion in particular, in incredibly uh, economically focused. I understand why you were doing this, but uh, I understand citizenship to be slightly more than that. And even though the rights that uh, EU citizens have derive themselves largely from the market constitution of the former European communities, it seems to me that there's a broader citizenship discourse around it which we need to take care of and need to notice. And also, I would say that um, uh, there has been a lot more been uh, going on in terms of expanding that notion by rights that are being claimed, but also uh, the kind of you know the passport that you showed earlier is certainly more than just simply an economic right. Something we may want to discuss later on. Um, so my my I want to make two arguments that have nothing to do with uh, the economy. It's partly because I've got an economic blind spot, as I'm sure Richard will point out later. Um, uh, but they are concerned with the relationship of Turkey and the EU in a kind of post-national project. So, and and uh, here I think I I am though agreeing with Richard that Sheila uh, Benabib and others, uh, I would say Andrew Linklater and the whole tradition of critical theorists of international relations have overstated the post-national character of the citizenship project that uh, the EU may constitute. So my first argument has to do with the challenge that Turkey brings to EU citizenship as an example of a post-national form of citizenship, which I think it clearly shows the boundaries of this particular discourse. The second argument I want to make um, has to do with something that Maurice mentioned in relation to what he called the public-private boundaries. I think it's also a challenge to a specific kind of secular understanding of citizenship, and I'll get back to that, because I think I find that a lot more problematic than you do, and maybe that's an interesting point to discuss. So let me just say a few words about my first point, the challenge to EU citizenship as this example of a post-national form of citizenship. Um, in this particular case, I would, I would first say, what would, what, how would you treat Turkey as a membership candidate if you were to conceive yourself as this kind of post-national community that is, you know, the people often make of the EU. <coughs> and I'd say that there are specific rules that then you would have to follow, and these are sort of set out in the acquis, but also set out in the tradition or in the, in the practice of enlargement as it has evolved. And that effectively means that in, those, in this context, you would have to, I presume, treat Turkey according to the rules that have been established and follow these through in the uh, enlargement negotiations. So you go through the chapters and you establish whether or not Turkey can meet the obligations that, are come, that come under these chapters. And if Turkey does not, uh, is not able, or perhaps the EU is unable to meet its obligations, then you would have to come uh, with transition periods and, and these kind of things, as has been practiced in other cases. And in that sense, you would look at, for instance, in terms of the Copenhagen criteria, say human rights, minority rights, but even that is, of course, problematic, because as we know, not all the member states actually follow uh, what they preach there. What we find instead, though, is that while this is going on on one level, the public discourse is dominated by two completely different things. 
the public discourse is dominated, in my view, by those who refer to security issues and make an argument in favor of EU membership of Turkey, because Turkey would enhance the security of the European Union, possibly, and those who use identity concerns. And I, again, we could discuss this, but I don't see, say, in the German public debate, economic issue at all at the forefront at the moment. This is, by and large, an identity issue. These identity concerns are being raised as concerns against Turkish membership. And so this idea comes up. There's an unholy alliance, if you will, between this concern about identity and the concern to give the EU citizens more say in public affairs. So the idea comes up to hold referendums uh, uh, about a possible Turkish membership, which, frankly speaking, is under the terms of the post-national community a ludicrous idea. It's a ludicrous idea because it basically undermines the whole idea of what a post-national space might be. How, are, how is a referendum supposed to be held? Well, a referendum is supposed to be held among, these are most of the uh, suggestions anyway, about, uh, among the citizens of individual member states, not even on the EU level, among individual member states, which would mean that if one of 27 countries, the citizens would say no, it would have tremendous effects on uh, people outside uh, the, uh, the EU, uh, and therefore it raises the issue of who ought actually that demos to be that is supposed to decide about membership of Turkey. Certainly, this is a full back into a very standard modern territorial configuration of national citizenship. If one member state and the citizens who are supposed to, uh, who are eligible to vote in that member state, can hold the rest of the EU and the other country hostage to the decision. Even a move up to the EU level would not really get us beyond that conundrum, because even then we would have the EU citizens deciding in a very classic traditional territorial way um, about not only their future, but also the future of another, uh, of another state and the citizens of that state. Now, the challenge, therefore, and I don't have a ready-made answer, I should hasten to it. I mean, I, I, I basically did say what I think we ought to do in this respect, and that is basically disregard citizens' uh, rights, as it were, and follow the, the legal procedures established. And I think that's, in a sense, even a kind of Habermasian way of dealing with it in this particular instance. Um, but I think a challenge is what constitutes the demos who could actually uh, um, uh, take decisions on that of decisions that lead to policy uh, effects that concern people outside that territorial space. Uh, there's an alternative way of looking at this problem, and that is not only in relation to Turkey. It, this raises a whole bundle of issues about uh, the citizens' rights in relation to political decisions and how far we can go with uh, this um, uh, referendum policy and so on, which I don't want to raise now because otherwise I would speak too long. But I think the, the, the question of a post-national citizenship is really uh, uh, completely undermined by this talk about uh, a referendum about, uh, in relation to um, a, a new uh, member state. Now, there is a sort of in-practice caveat to this, which I do want to mention, uh, and that is 
that even within the EU, there has been long talk about citizenship practice as opposed to the formal legal citizenship rights that you have. Um, so uh, for a long time, the argument was that actually, due to the free movements and so on, and the practices that citizens were taking up, even before European citizenship had been established in the Maastricht Treaty as such, there had been a citizenship practice established, so citizens were claiming, as it were, their rights as EU citizens. Now, this argument, funnily enough, pops up again in the discussion about Turkey and the EU. Uh, Ford Cayman and uh, Bahar Rumanili recently wrote a paper in which they argued that Turks, as it were, are taking up their citizenship rights. And now, they have a rather loose conception here of the EU because they take claims vis-a-vis -vis the, uh, or in front of the European Court of Human Rights as part of that. But nonetheless, there are also cases where Turks, uh, through the Ankara Agreement, um, are bringing cases in front of the European Court of Justice. And of course, there is the issue of drawing on the EU as a reference point in making claims within Turkey, all of which leads to an argument saying that Turks are actually um, uh, using uh, their citizenship rights. So one could argue that there is, despite the exclusionary effects that I've talked about previously, there is, as it were, a citizenship practice growing uh, in which Turks benefit, as it were, from EU citizenship without having it, if, if you see what I mean. Uh, I think while some of this is true, I do think it overemphasizes the, uh, the, the citizenship, uh, citizenship rights that can be claimed and therefore overemphasizes the positive effects. I do think that these citizenship practices as they develop are rather narrow uh, and confined, and they're confined by the broader public discussion about identity and so on that I was alerting to earlier. So in a different piece, uh, uh, Fuad Kehman, um, together with Faisi Baban, makes an argument that I think I can only uh, read out and, and uh, stand and let stand there because I think it, it captures what I wanted to say in this first point, where they say Turkey forces a debate on three crucial areas that are directly related to the cosmopolitan future of Europe A, Europe's geopolitical place in the global world, B, post national forms of a European public sphere, and C, European identity. And I think that is indeed the first challenge that I want to point to. Probably running out of time now, so very shortly on my, on my second point. My second point was to say that, that Turkey also challenges what many people to believe our secular understanding of citizenship. And what I mean by this is not the fact that uh, there's a struggle between Christianity and Islam or God knows what. What I mean with that is that there is a struggle within the modern Turkish Republic about how you constitute identity and, as it were, citizenship. Now, in the, as, as Maurice has outlined it, uh, in the, in the uh, early 20th century solution to this, as it were, secularism became a core pillar of Kemalism, and that's led to, in a sense, a slightly ambiguous arrangement, but an arrangement that excluded religious symbols on one level from the public, the public sphere, while at the same time, of course, uh, controlling religion, where Islam, as it were, became also part of citizenship practice, if you will, but it was excluded uh, um, in, in a rather French way, as it were, uh, from the public sphere, and therefore citizenship was not tied to um, uh, religious symbols and so on. 
Now this, it seems to me, is changing, or not only it seems to me that one would generally say that this is changing. Uh, one can see this, of course, with the rise of the AKP, with the change of the constitution, and in that context, Aishi Cariolo was, uh, was arguing that there is what she called a denationalization of citizenship, moving citizenship away from this Kemalist tradition that would only see the Turk, as it were, as the holder of citizenship in a particular way. Now, it seems to me that these changes raise an issue that we, as Europeans, are often avoiding but are confronted with, and that is whether citizenship ca can exclude religious feelings uh, and religious symbols. And it seems to me here that there is, and, uh, and ironically I should say, that the whole uh, EU membership process has, of course, in a sense, helped that change within, within Turkey. But it seems to me here that there are tensions also within European conceptions of citizenship, which claim to be very secular on the one hand, but of course have underlying a very narrow Christian tradition of citizenship. Uh, and the whole discussion about whether one should have a reference to God in the, in the European constitution that then didn't happen, but uh, that, that, that discussion seems to me symptomatic for that. Now it seems to me that the, the way that this has gone in Turkey is a reminder that suppressing religious symbols is not the right way to go, and that citizenship, in a sense, needs to acknowledge religious feelings and desires and not fight them. Therefore, the solution, it seems to me, and this is the challenge also for the EU, also in the context of possible Turkish membership, is not to exclude religious feelings, but to lead to a pluralist integration of different forms of religion, so that in a sense both the cross and the headscarf have a, their place in the public. And so I am adamantly opposed to what the French and others have done in this respect. It seems to me that the boundary is that they ought not, that religious, religious symbols ought not to be constructed in such a way that they deny the right of the other to, to exist. But it seems to me that they need to be acknowledged and, need, and citizenship needs to be sort of drawn back. And it seems to me that the Turkish discussion or the change that we have, as it were, partly not imposed on Turkey, I think this has also come from domestic sources, but that we have strengthened, the transformation that we have strengthened within Turkey might well fall back on our own understandings of what <coughs> citizenship actually is and, and how it stands in relation to religious identities. Well, you ask an academic to speak for 10 minutes, see what happens. Um, excellent content, hopeless timing, boys. Uh, now, uh, we had, as we went through it, actually, it's the economy stupid, it's the demographics stupid, and then it's security and identity stupid. So, very good. Um, we do have a little bit of time before we open it up to get give you an opportunity for quick responses from where you are uh, and we'll go back in the order and give you just a couple of minutes each to uh, raise further questions before we open up the discussion so um, Richard do you want to come back on anything and we don't have to take this off immediately but you can well I'll just say uh, two things one for, for, for each speaker <coughs> I mean the first 
said that uh, citizenship has become more inclusive for us. Uh, but if you think the issues which define citizenship in the past, birth, education, wealth, property, and gender, remain for those who don't automatically become citizens because they're born on the soil. Uh, all of those factors remain important in one way or another. Uh, they can influence the degree and the, to which you get access to, to, to citizenship of, of all of the members so as far as I can tell. Uh, of course, <coughs> there are many systems which open out them, but, but one could be, if one has the right there, education, wealth, and gender in issues where marriage, for example, is uh, one of the ways whereby you can have access to they all they all play a part uh, and have not been eroded entirely. That's important, I think, also when it talks about a post-national citizenship project, because I think, in many respects, JP does show what rubbish that notion is. You know, even in, <laughs> You know, Habermas was not what Turkey did, I would think, precisely because it's not really a post-national uh, view. It's quite legitimate to sort of say, oh, but they should all be, I mean, it's normally said what defines citizenship in this, in this uh, context is that they're all signed up to human rights. Uh, Turkey is part of the Council of Europe. It has made steps towards uh, cleaning up its, its Human Rights Act. So, you know, the same argument, let's say, it's on the par with really, <coughs> on the road to best practice in, in that as far as one could demand. But the issue <coughs> is that even within each of the member states, the move towards political citizenship and the centre of defining oneself political is all downwards towards more cohesive national groupings rather than upwards towards supranational. Every single member state is devolving power towards minority national groups. Okay, Richard, I have to interrupt you. Thank right. you. Um, Morris? Okay. Um, well, very quickly, um, none of the, um, sort of, if you like, essentialist objections to, to, to uh, or complications of citizenship that you described there, which have actually obstruct the uh, a naturalization plus citizenship test, such as many all European countries, to my knowledge, now, uh, now, now have. If you stick around long enough and you show a bit of knowledge to and profess a commitment to the values of the country, you'll get in on anything from a four to eight year time scale, typically. I think it's five years in, in, in Britain now, which I, which I, I, I think is an important sort of inclusive. Um, point which I think we shouldn't beat ourselves up too much, perhaps, uh, on on our uh, approach to citizenship, given that inclusiveness. Um, the uh, one point that um, we're talking about, sort of uh, entitlements to public services, or rather, and how it reads across to hospitality idea. Um, it is the case that anybody can turn up in an NHS hospital, outpatients, um, and with any illness from any part of the world. And, and anyone sat in outpatients in an inner London hospital will be surrounded by people who, um, who are patently 
have literally just arrived in many cases, come off a boat or a plane um, for treatment from Africa, from wherever, uh, and uh, we uh, and they have an absolute entitlement to treatment under our system, not to stay, not in fact hospitality, but to something in some sense of more far-reaching, a substantial service funded by the taxpayer, uh, and we do have that and that quite uh, ambitious, uh, extend, extensive and generous notion of self-hospitality um, is there. Um, I agree with what you said on, um, which on, on Thomas's point. It seems to me that nobody's ever pretended that a post-national citizenship can ever be based on anything other uh, than national citizenship, which is in every sense logically prior to a post-national citizenship. We are, we're still, for good or ill, live in a European Union of Nation States. Um, and, um, and, uh, and in most clubs, one person or one group can actually veto or blackball the accession of that as a prerogative of being a member of a club, and the EU is no different. Very final point, extremely quickly. Um, uh, on this question of, um, uh, of, of uh, Thomas, your, your point about respecting the, the otherness in terms of, terms of religion and developing a notion of citizenship which does this, there's, it, there's quite fascinating divergence of views of between people, elites, and all that who profess a belief in a liberal neutral space. And you can have a liberal neu neutral, liberal neutrality under a multicultural. Uh, tolerant system which lets 100 flowers bloom and you're not actually uh, the state is not imposing any notion of good life um, and it is respecting all those choices or you can have the French route which is you remove all symbols and outward signs of allegiance uh, because they are potentially confrontational uh, and they are logically prior, um, less important uh, than the relation of citizenship so you simply abolish them from the public space both of them have got a pretty good philosophical claim to, 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 for philosophy to liberal neutrality. I incline much more to Thomas's view personally um, that this argument about liberal neutrality is one which uh, a familiar one in political philosophy, but in many ways are coming at it. And both of them can actually put rather a rather impeccably liberal progressive case for these two very different models of how we should run along with each other. Thank you, Lawrence. Thomas. Yeah, I mean I but one thing I would I would say that um, I I think we need to discuss to what extent does economic business plays into into, into this discussion um, uh, because I think there is there is on the one level it is true that the citizenship rights were established as rights of market citizens to start with but I'm not sure whether the conclusion then is because uh, Turkey has a particular size and so on that that, that would undermine as it were the development of these rights. I mean, for one thing, uh, one could argue that uh, that Turkey has enormous economic growth rates, so you would have to say that that might be a temporary problem. But also, it was the same arguments that were being put forward uh, in the last enlargement. I mean, you know, apart from that, if you had done a referendum before the last enlargement, you wouldn't have the last enlargement. Okay? <laughs> um, but I. I I mean, maybe because I'm in Germany now and we're not going through such an economic crisis as you guys do at the moment. I, 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 I These arguments don't play a role anymore, as it were. Yeah? And, uh, and even the restrictions in terms of the, 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 the migrant workers. That there were, at some point, I saw a funny statistic that there were more, po more Poles working in Germany than there were in the UK, even though Germany had, uh, had a 
in Port Stewart. So, so the Germans are delighted to be bailing out Greece. <laughs> are they? Uh, I mean, that's a very yeah, that's, contentious but policy. Yeah, but, 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 uh, but hang on. The, 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 the difficulty with Greece was that Greece had light uh, to, uh, when, 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 when they did the Africa, when, when they became, when they joined in Europe. Now, the, so therefore, uh, th that's the main argument. Now, this is interesting in the rhetoric. The argument is not that we ought not to bail out another Euro country. The argument is, ought we bail out someone who actually uh, deceived us? And, and even so, yeah, one actually found a solution. So I think, I think the, the, I mean, I think there is an issue there, but I think also there's a slippery slope in the argument if, you, if we pursue that. Because then ultimately you can always say, well, this, uh, this taking up this country is going to challenge us too much. And this has been an argument against every previous enlargement, not, not the UK one, but the more recent ones. Uh, and I don't, I don't actually believe that. Uh, um, the, the migration streams that were forecast before the last enlargement were not exactly the ones that happened or did not in any way have the social effects that were, that were uh, forecast. And I don't think, therefore, that uh, that we ought to discuss Turkish enlargement and, and what it means for citizenship in those terms. Okay, good, good. Well done. We're sort of back on track. I'm trying to no, no, create you, a yeah, <laughs> <good>. <laughs> Right, now it's over to you. Now you can have a, a question to anybody, or you can make a small contribution to which they would uh, respond. To make, if it is a contribution, please keep it brief so we can get as many people in as possible. If you put your hand up and I can see you. What's the question? Yeah. Well, I would like to ask Richard, uh, especially this notion that Turkey ruled for the full country. And I'm wondering, except these Northern European countries, how many countries which get into European Union were relatively rich countries? And they were, you know, they kind of like get into Europe to contribute to the economy. Because we have to also take into account in the last 10 years, Turkey went from number 26 to number 16, and I mean, Turkey is not going to get in Europe in like, you know, tomorrow or next day, and it's like that it's going to take like, more than 10 years or 15 years. And the more Turkey's economy started grow, actually, the emphasis shifted more from economic dimension on the, uh, on the cultural dimension, because I think like, uh, I disagree with the notion that it's the economy which goes in the end, because in the, uh, in Germany, when you have social democrats, they were supporting Turkey's, even though the economy was the same, but when you have Christian democrats, they are saying, look, well, we are not compatible culturally, so how would you say that, and that it, uh, in the end, it's going to be uh, the culture, uh, in, in the end, it's going to be the economy? Thank you, that's a very good challenge. Okay, well, I mean, uh, in, in, in essence, I was I was uh, saying that the economy, you know, has a has an effect because it's so large. I mean, the other countries they may have been poor, but they were not so so large, and that makes a, a big a big difference. I think culture comes in when one begins to think of the EU if one more as a political project uh, and. So, to some degree, it's to the advantage of Turkey <laughs> um, to think of it in economic terms. Uh, my point was that if one did, it would put an end to thinking of it in political terms, because then the cultural issue 
becomes much more significant, I think. And it does so for the following reasons that, I mean, you know, here I may need to be corrected because I don't know much about Turkish uh, politics, but my impression is that whereas in, in um, the current member states, the main political cleavage can be put on left-right axes, that's not necessarily the case in Turkey. And that would then create a, you know, a difficulty in terms of thinking about uh, political accommodations, because the minute you can't see it simply in terms of one dimension, then the likelihood that a particular group will feel that its interests are being permanently outvoted becomes more apparent. And so it could be a problem for Turkey itself in that, in that context. Anybody else? Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, obviously, it's gone downhill. Um, the, uh, it's gone downhill in, in, in various ways. I mean, there was the uh, transatlantic survey which, which showed that uh, the support levels have come down. Uh, the, the role that uh, Europe plays in public debates has gone down. Um, and uh, of course, um, ultimately, uh, you cannot extend membership negotiations forever. I mean, obviously, uh, the, the argument that membership negotiations or that, that the attraction of membership would ultimately sustain and reinforce democratization processes in countries like Turkey is limited if uh, at some point uh, the, the prospect of membership uh, seems to fade away into eternity. Um, so at some point you will have to come clean uh, will you want uh, the member or not? Uh, and I suppose we are soon seeing that moment where you have to come clean. Thomas, is it growing indifference or growing opposition? Uh, this is an interesting one. Uh, I, I'd say it's probably growing, I mean, but other people may correct me here. I suppose it's growing indifference, uh, but on the other hand, uh, there are. I don't think it's opposition in the sense of actively being against. It's just basically saying, "Well, you don't want us, and whatever, we'll have to, we'll, we'll have to uh, go elsewhere." Now, of course, the reason why we're not moving forward, one should always remember, is a completely different one from the one we've debated so far. The reason why we're going forward at the moment is Cyprus, uh, and of course, that's the whole Cyprus issue prevents Germany and France from coming clean. Yeah, because they can at the moment hide behind, they don't hide necessarily, but they don't have to. The, the, the point isn't actually pushed, yeah, which uh, any secrets uh, in the room, uh, I, uh, which I, am, I think this is uh, uh, therefore outrageous. Yeah? And I think uh, the whole service issue prevents at the moment uh, the, the, the EU and Turkey from proceeding on the path that I would like it to proceed in order to at some point come to a clear decision. But it, it, is there a sense sometimes that if it wasn't Cyprus, it would be something else that other countries have been able to get? No, but the question is, would they be able and willing to actually raise this in public and uh -huh. actually prevent? And that is the moment. I mean, at the moment, they can, they can uh, to their home audiences, eh, they can, they can uh, talk about uh, alternative forms of membership and also privileged partnerships and, and such and that. Uh, but they're not pushed to actually.
actually pursue this uh, because um, uh, the, the membership negotiations are uh, not going forward anyway. Yes, come, come in on that. Um, I don't think that, I mean, as, as, you, as you say, Thomas, um, and I sound corrected by, by, by Shevket, um, who's, 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 who's here, um, as you say, the ostensible reason uh, is Cyprus, but France and Germany were perfectly open, whenever it was, a year or 18 months ago, in, saying, in, in, in insisting that uh, talks be suspended with Turkey. Um, I mean, that they, uh, they've been all clear all along what the position is on Turkish succession. They have lost political capital in Ankara. But they said very publicly that uh, they put things put things on hold, um, and I don't think was, they were able to hide behind the Cyprus issue as an excuse. They're completely open, as as uh, Nicolas Sarkozy is bound to be in the next 18 months. France is now already in pre-election campaign mode, and I'm sure he will say very publicly and on the record as part of his campaigning uh, until June 2012 that uh, there's no question of Turkish uh, membership. So what I'm saying is they don't need the camouflage and the pretext. I think it would just be perfectly open and you know, yeah. overt. Uh, and it's all about electoral politics now, um, certainly in France, and, and more widely, even when there are elections in the country, it's electoral politics. Again, in the electoral politics, I agree, but I wanted to. The thing is, what is the, pro the problem is that they're not forced to negotiate. Because would they be forced to negotiate with the Commission coming up with chapter, uh, chapter uh, assessments, etc.? Uh, then the question is, how would they react in a situation where the Commission comes up with a total uh, uh, statement about you know, where Turkey now is? No? And then it becomes more difficult to actually maintain that position in the Council. No? That, is, that is the challenge. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Something actually 
that has now been overtaken, uh, and he's changed his, his tune. Uh, all I'm saying is that I think that, um, that you know, um, models of integration are still so varied in Europe that there will never come to a point where we can all feel that there is a recognizable way within the EU of dealing with the other, of social integration, and think, right, we've sorted that, let's move on to Turkey. Turkey's going to have to insert itself into a very diffuse and complex and conflictual debate uh, in, in the EU, which isn't going to make it any easier for Turkey to join. But I can't see any emerging consensus in the EU, even though, as I say, there's been a slight trend uh, towards integration at the public policy level in most EU, in most EU countries. Okay, thank you. Any more? Yes, one right at the back. I just a question about the pensioners in, in Europe. As we know, Europe's population is growing older and older, and we have less young people to pay the pensions, and the Turkish population is mainly, the majority is young. Is, do you think it's a case where Europeans are waiting for Tur Turkey's accession? <laughs> we need to pay our pension. people to pay the pensioners. <laughs> Now, actually, that was Morris's argument. So, rather than let Morris run it again, it would be quite interesting to hear what the other two thought about it. As it were, there's a, there's a, you had the public discourse of uh, identity and security, and you had, as it were, the elite political discourse about the economy. And Morris had this sort of objective feature of the demographics of Europe necessitating a kind of co-opting of, of uh, countries like Turkey to to start helping us out on this. Thomas, what's your On the public discourse level, I think the problem is that people are uh, perhaps rightfully very skeptical of any of those forecasts, in part because the forecasts always assume, or they make certain assumptions that things will continue down a particular trend. Now, it's unlikely that the, that the, that the birth rate is all of a sudden going to increase, but I think one of the unknowns is, of course, how much work there will be in the future, depending on how uh, industries and so on are going to, to change. Uh, so what people, I think, see is that uh, there is still unemployment, and as long as the unemployment stays relatively high, they will distrust uh, this argument that is being put forward by loads of experts in the newspapers and so on, that in the future we will need uh, all those Turkish babies. Uh, and uh, ultimately, therefore, the argument at the moment uh, is being put forward by experts again and again and again, and it basically completely dissipates in the public debate. There's no, I mean, there's no resonance whatsoever um, because people see there is still unemployment. Um, and I do have to say that, I mean, it is true, of course, that we need people to pay our pension, but I do actually think that the, the, the public is perhaps rightfully sceptical of some of these long-term uh, uh, assessments because there are too many unknowns about this. Now, you know, I, I, the, the German unemployment rate is going down at the moment, so we're below 3 million, and uh, of course the economic upturn is, is one aspect of this, but there is also talk now that one of the main reasons is that, uh, as it were, there are uh, less people who are actually coming onto uh, the labour market as the uh, older generations goes into their, uh, their pension. Um, uh, and so that, that may, that may uh, um, bring that may bring up uh, the, the issue more forcefully at some point if the, the workforce goes down. No, but if, if, if the overall availability of work goes down, then having more people around will not help the pension problem. 
maintain a relatively large workforce of people who would actually pay into the pension fund. And I think that's a problem that uh, uh, is, is, is... So I, I, I wouldn't... I don't think that you'll win the argument on the streets of Tübingen uh, if, if, you, if you focus on uh, Turks paying the pensions of <coughs> me, because I'm not... <laughs> <laughs> Richard, do you want to add for that? I mean, I, I actually rather agree with what Thomas says. I, mean, I, I think, even though, from a personal point of view, I, I, you know, I, I'd like to believe that there was that it was you know, um, straightforwardly true that immigration was was a good thing economically and that all good things therefore came together. Uh, sadly, I think it's one of those issues which is much more contestable and you know, experts do differ on, on on this issue and there is evidence before people's eyes in terms of unemployment, rising unemployment rates which tends to make the benefits seem less tangible than the imagined uh, costs. So I think that uh, it's, it's one of those policy areas which is is not at all straightforward, either in you know even for either in public perceptions or amongst experts. Thank you. Yeah, one at the front. Yeah. Uh, Speak nice and loud to the people at the back and here because you're facing so away. Just to, to follow on this line on on future and long term perspectives. Um, where do you see Europe if we keep this very static point of view of of as I see, we're not really opening up. We try to keep whatever we have, but not even realizing the potential Turkey has, because some cultural uh, difficulties, which of course exist, but in the 21st century, where we see the very fast-paced development, and and in decades' time, we can probably uh, move on from the current status quo, and realize where Europe will be in, let's say, 2050. Can you please elaborate on that, how you see Europe without, well, because I myself see Turkey as a strategically very good partner, if you see its uh, point in the Muslim world, <coughs> if you see uh, geopolitically, uh, even energy and energetically, uh, Turkey is a huge potential, not only on the 70 million people, which, as I understood, last week, uh, probably by 2050 will be uh, a higher population than even Germany, so that will probably be the EU's biggest member. Good, uh, good yeah. question. Well, of course, you know, where will the world be, etc, etc, who knows? Um, I think... There are two two concretes here. One is the security issue, the, re yeah. the way it plays out in the geopolitics, that you've got a way of mediating relations between West and East and so on, and then you have the other opportunity that it raises with respect to uh, energy supply. And yes, I mean, like the, the argument, you know, that in Europe includes Turkey, then it'll be so much harder for Islamic powers uh, outside Europe to talk about you know, Europe as a whole as being uh, in the or whatever. Uh, but I mean, 
that's already could be is the case in the sense that, that most of the member states, or many of them, are heavily multicultural in, in character. Uh, and I don't think that will necessarily make much difference to to the groups <laughs> that <coughs> make that that accusation. They'll just say the Turkish elites have sold out their people or whatever. So I think what has to be I, I mean some in other words, it's unclear that you would necessarily get the benefit that people often expect from from that the the, uh, the prestige benefits or whatever of of, of, of having that. Um, and it's pushed very much by the United States, incidentally, rather than the European powers. But this is one thing that they should do for the for the um, uh, geopolitical advantage. I think it's minor, really. I mean, yeah. I'm more interested in like where Europe would be in a global scale if we're not improving also internally and externally in our also attitude how we behave with countries like even Turkey. Well, I'm not quite. I'm not entirely certain. I know what you mean by that. <coughs> I don't. I don't think that's a good. No, no, I, I don't think that, uh, you know, this is my home ground now, international relations, yeah, yeah. That's, that's why I was looking at it probably. I, I, don't, I don't think that you, that Turkish EU membership as such is the, the core yes or no question in those security terms. You can, the, the problems that you outlined, you can handle on different levels. In fact, one could question from a global security architecture whether Turkey as an EU member is really the ideal solution. Because ultimately, I think, to my mind, there is a question that the EU really has to, to ask itself. And that is, if it promotes regional integration across the globe, which it does, I mean, it supports the African Union, for instance, with loads of money, the question is, how do you envisage a global security structure in, in the future? And in particular, how, how should these regional uh, complexes relate to each other. Yeah. Now, the ideal way, I suppose, would be, if we're moving away from citizenship, no, the, <laughs> the ideal way would be if you structure the borders between those uh, regions in an overlapping way. Yeah. Now, if you do that, it may well be that you would have a regional integration project around Turkey, say, that overlaps in one way or another with you. Now, how you do that, I don't know. But from a global security architecture, therefore, it does not necessarily mean that uh, Turkey being a member of the EU would be uh, the ideal. Now, in terms of EU power, as it were, or if you meant that, in, in 50 years' time, and, and whether uh, the, the EU can have power without Turkey being a member, I don't know. I don't see one being a necessary condition for the other, so to speak. There are multiple ways of organizing this. Right? And energy security and so on, you have the concept of the international regime that you could, that, that, I mean, you, that Turkey isn't really tied into these things. I mean, there's plenty of ways of organizing this. Can I just If you're giving us the luxury of being able to think ahead on 2050 rather than 2020 time scale, I think my, my answer. Um, hubristically will be uh, I, I, I think I'm, I have an overwhelming sense that uh, Turkey uh, will join uh, the, 
first of all, because the value systems of Europeans are universal value systems, uh, whether it's from uh, uh, from, an, from the uh, Judeo-Christian uh, um, uh, tradition of the the, uh, uh, the the golden uh, the golden rule in the Bible, universalizing our values, or whether it's from Kant. Or